Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. In this special episode, we had the opportunity to do our first live Cold Steel interview. We were lucky enough to be able to have Dr. Justin Dimmick join us at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, as part of our William Ursel Research Day. During this interview, we really delved into Dr. Dimmick's life story and his vision for how we can continue to improve the craft of surgery. Once again, thanks to everybody for allowing uh, me the opportunity to interview Dr. Dimmick and to be part of the, the William Ursel Research Day. It's it's an absolute pleasure and an honor uh, to be here, and we're really pleased to record this interview and uh, uh, upload it later as part of the Cold Steel uh, Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast, um, which you can find on any platform you like, uh, Google, Spotify, you name it. So, you know, Sunil introduced Dr. Dimmick earlier, um, and really, there isn't much in medicine that Dr. Dimmick hasn't done. And it really, if we were to talk about your achievements, it would take the, the full hour. You're, as mentioned, you're the Frederick A. Collar Distinguished Professor and Department of Chair at the University of Michigan. You have a long track record of R01 funding from the Agency for Health Research and Quality and National Institutes of Health. You've done a tremendous amount of work in quality measurement, policy evaluation, and long scale, large-scale innovative quality improvement interventions. Dr. Dimmick has more than 450 peer-reviewed publications, including many papers in NEGEM, JAMA, Health Affairs, and uh, other leading surgical journals. And I could go, go on and on. Um, but really, I think one of the things that I wanted to talk about with, with Dr. Dimmick today is about mentorship because I think uh, you know on the podcast we've had the opportunity to have a number of Dr. Dimmick's mentees um, people like Andrew Ibrahim, Vahag Nikolian, uh, people who have in their own right gone on to do really really amazing things and, and one of the things that I think in from my perspective that I've really admired about the work that Dr. Dimmick has done is on leadership and on mentorship um, and so that's why I've I've labeled this part of the hour, how I built this. So many of you may have listened to this podcast by Guy, Guy hosted by Guy Raz um, called How I Built This. And, and he goes and interviews people like the founder of Spanx and the founder of Bumble and, um, you know, all these major corporations, innovations, things like that. And, and I'm hoping in this hour we can explore some of the things in terms of not only um, how I built this, in other words, how Dr. Dr. Dimmick has built his career, but also how he's created this culture of innovation and leadership at the University of Mich Michigan. And, and I think I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say that, when you look at the work that's coming out of the University of Michigan. Uh, but I want to take us way back, and, and I did do some, some digging and some, some look back on Dr. Dimmick's career. And one of the things that's always fascinated me, in, um, and when we interview people and we talk to um, leaders in surgery is 
how their early experiences really shaped their career and their outlook on life. And uh, it was really uh, actually uh, heartwarming to read some articles that was published in the Herald, which is uh, like the newspaper uh, from the city where Dr. Dimmick grew up in in New, in New Hampshire, right? Um, the, the Herald. Not New Hampshire, Vermont. Vermont. My, my, oh boy, I made a big faux pas right off the hop. But, but the, you can find these amazing articles in the Herald talking about not just Dr. Dimmick and his exploits as a surgical resident, but also uh, about your dad. And correct me if I'm wrong, but your dad was the, the president of the Randolph National Bank for almost 25 years. And he was actually awarded uh, a, an award for community service. And so it seems like leadership runs in your blood. How, do, how did your early career and your parents and your childhood kind of drive that, uh, your outlook on surgery and, and perhaps more broadly on leadership? That's a, that's a lot. That's a good question, but it feels more like psychotherapy than it does <laughs> like, a, like a podcast. Yeah, so yeah, I'm from Randolph, Vermont, which is pretty close to here, actually, believe it or not. It's about a town of about 2,000 people nestled exactly between nowhere and nowhere in Vermont. It's a pretty small rural place, about 30 miles south of Montpelier. And my father was a community banker, which is not like an investment banker, uh, for those of you who might conflate the two. Uh, community banking is, you know, he was, it was a small bank. The board of, board of directors were dairy farmers and trying to scrape out an existence on small farms in middle, middle Vermont. My father had five kids and made $80,000 a year at his peak. So I did not, it's not coming from a wealthy family. Um, and he was the bank president following his father, my grandfather, who um, is, was a, both role models of mine as community servants. But my grandfather, came back from World War II and couldn't get a job. And so he started at, as the janitor of the bank and worked his way up from janitor to president and grew their assets. And uh, from a leadership perspective, one of the biggest lessons I learned hearing their stories, people struggled economically and financially where I grew up a lot. And a lot of that was because of the competition from bigger farms, you know, as we started to have a national landscape. And so my grandfather and then my father helped a lot of the farms in central Vermont convert to organic and helped create organic milk purchasing co-ops like for Cabot cheese and then Ben and Jerry's ice cream and things like that. And I love that lesson because it, to me it was what do you do when your back's up against the wall and you're trying to help people? You can combine your capital. You can one by one convert the farms and get the equipment necessary to do that. And so that's, that's where I come from. Those are the people I grew up with. And I think that... Um, that definitely has left an impact on me in a couple of ways. One, I was come from a big family. Anyone from a big family? Like when you're not, you guys are all from small families, but when you grow up in a big family, and especially I was a teenager and I were a bunch of toddlers. And so the first lesson I learned from that was uh, that you might as well not complain because no one's going to hear you. And as a leadership lesson, I, I wonder sometimes if you end up in charge of things, if you're the one who complains the least. Because people think you might have a solution. You might not, but you're just not complaining. And most people do spend a lot of time finding problems. Um, and I learned early on that, that complaining didn't fix problems. I had to fix them myself. And so I think I had a lot of agency uh, coming from a big family like that where the people that might have helped me or might have heard my complaints had bigger problems like 
kids running around like crazy. So those are some of my early childhood uh, thoughts. Does that fit your the psychotherapy that you're hoping to engage that's, in? That, that's that's brilliant. Um, so so no no one in your family was in medicine. Is that correct? No. Right. And yet you're you're you, know, you look at your background coming into me to medicine and surgery. You were kind of like the the exemplary of what people talk about in in what we're looking for in a physician and particularly in, in a surgeon. You were on the varsity wrestling team at Cornell. You went on to get a medical degree at Johns Hopkins, uh, a master's at Dartmouth, and then went on to pursue surgical residency at the University of Michigan. What drew you into medicine more generally? And secondly, what, what drew you into surgery specifically? He really did his research. The Herald of Randolph. <laughs> uh, so... You know, I, I I knew I'd the I knew I wasn't going to stay in Vermont. There were not a lot of jobs, especially where I grew up, and so most people who go on to college leave the leave the state to look for job opportunities. I was lucky enough to I had to go to Cornell University. I was recruited for wrestling, as you mentioned, and that's probably the only reason I got in to uh, such a good school uh, was for for my athletic prowess, which I know is shocking and hard to believe. Um, but I, you know, I, the only exposure I had to physicians was my pediatrician, and in a small town, that's kind of. I mean, I, I think I saw him until I was thirty, <laughs> because he was the only doctor I, I had. But he, he, that's so that's kind of what I thought, and I liked science. I liked, I liked the caring for others that comes with a physician. So I went to medical school, and I got expo exposed to other things and surgery at first was not appealing to me because of surgeons. They were not that nice. Um, and they were kind of egocentric. And we kind of talked about this earlier and how I hope that a coaching personality will sort of transform that surgical personality. But I like to say I liked surgery, the craft, but not surgeons. So I actually did it first. Um, I was quiet. I just kind of stood in the corner. I got a B in surgery. And I know you're thinking, oh, poor Dr. Dimmick got a B. They only gave two grades, A, which meant you should be a surgeon, B, which means you shouldn't be a surgeon, just to be clear. And I got a B. And I went through, I cycled through all of my other rotations and then realized that I was needed to be a surgeon because I wanted to do, to do that craft. Um, so I took a year off and applied in surgery, despite my chair telling me that I shouldn't be co going to surgery because I got a B, and that means we, didn't, we don't want you to be a surgeon. So interesting that some, so many of the the surgeons that we've interviewed for the podcast, and I can't even speak personally. Like, so when I was applying um, for residency, I remember going to an interview. Uh, I won't say where, uh, but I went to it for an interview, and someone looked at you know like I was interested in the humanities. I had done speech training when I was uh, younger and was a speech arts teacher, and you know he was the the interviewer was looking at me and was like, "Why? I, why do you want to be a surgeon? Like you should be like an internist or something." Um, and so that that's always stayed with me. Um, so, what do you think? Um, what do you think that says about our professions that we still have these ideas or archetypes for surgery? Do you think those things still apply, or have those things changed? And what do you think that means broadly for the house of surgery um, that we still have these prevailing archetypes? Uh, and why do you think you didn't fit into that archetype? I think it's really exciting that I think the archetypes are changing. I mean, I, I, and I don't know, I, I can't, I don't know where they came from, but I actually think this this mythology of the perfect 
surgeon, you know, it's usually like a arrogant white man, right? At least that's how they portray him in TVs and movies, right? Like this notion that that was the archetype, I think it did more damage to our profession than good. And it's really exciting to see just people with different ideas, different ideologies coming in and bringing enriching the tapestry of American surgery. So I think it's a it's a it's a major improvement. And I, th- I look at, you know, I don't know the landscape as much in Canada, and it's possible that the archetype never applied to you because you're better than that, and this was a, the American archetype just contaminating you. That's very possible. Um, I'm sure it happens in many, many areas. But the deans of American medical schools are not tolerant of that anymore, and they want better for our departments of surgery. And so I see it changing very quickly. The peers that I see getting appointed to leadership positions in American surgery are the people who are going to change that culture and bring in diverse ideas and diverse people and people who break the archetype. And because I think it was also preventing people with, with unique interests from coming into our field. And so I think it's headed in the right direction. It's really exciting. And I think we're kind of at a tipping point in many ways right now where people with bad behavior are going to be like in the dark corners because they need to be over there with a coach because they got to work on improving their behavior. But I think those types of personalities are getting more banished to the the dark corners. Yeah, I I certainly hope that's the case. Um, So so even as a resident, it's clear that you you got passionate about research. Um, and, And going back to the good old Herald, uh, they actually have a, 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 an article about a paper that you published as a resident um, that showed that having an ICU board-certified um, physician as opposed to someone without board certification resulted in a decrease in perioperative complications. So clearly, you know, that early desire and interest in research existed. Where did that come from? Does he always do research like this? This is like s- super impressive. Digging deep, I might have been like one of my first publications. So where, so I, I always liked math. I like math because it can have a truth, and so I got interested in the concept of how statistics are the and research methods can help you find the right answer to questions. That just became as almost like a philosophy to me. Uh, so I I took some night classes in epidemiology. And I read like all the work coming out of McMaster. We t- were talking about it at lunch. Uh, the user's guides, the literature that JAMA was publishing, all that kind of the epidemiology, evidence-based medicine movement was when I was in medical school. So I, I found that really appealing to start thinking about finding truth in the data and how to design studies in a way that would help us find truth. But it was almost like a, just a philosophical need. Um, and, and, you, and you saw especially in surgical literature, really bad study designs. Like it's pretty clear based on clear principles that they're getting the wrong answer. Like underpowered, one of the first papers I wrote as a medical student looked at the appropriate statistical power amongst randomized trials in surgery and like 98% of them are underpowered. And that seemed like a pretty basic thing that we should be working on. And so it just it caught my interest in my eye and I guess I've always been an academic at heart, but more from a philosophical perspective. So, I mean, obviously you've, you've been in the research world for a long time now and made a lot of contributions to it. I'm curious w- where you think the state of surgical research is today. Because, um, you know, for example, 
uh, Sunil was one of the residents from McMaster just had a paper you know accepted that talked about for example the fragility index around trials looking at new adjuvant therapy for rectal cancer and they're incredibly fragile trials and yet we've changed all of our practice in how we treat rectal cancer based on those uh, few studies and limited follow-up so I'm curious how you feel about the state of surgical research today and has anything changed from the time you were a resident? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it was mostly case series and kind of evident, eminence-based medicine back in the day. I think there's a lot higher quality research going on. It's still hard to do surgical trials for all those reasons, but I think people are undertaking them at scale unless they are appropriately powered, et cetera. And remember, like not all the not all surgical science is published in surgical journals. Like some of the best surgical science is published in general medical journals like JAMA, like New England Journal. And you know, oftentimes if you have a big trial, it's not going to be done by surgeons only. It might be done by surgeons and medical oncologists and statisticians. So I think the, the state of the research has, in 20 years since I was a medical student, 25 years since I was a medical student, has progressed a lot. So we, we've heard your talk, amazing talk today about operative video and coaching, uh, but you've really been delving into the concept of quality in surgery for a long time, um, you know, starting with your paper on, on ICU and perioperative complications. Um, and, I, and I really want to drill a little bit uh, on your ideas around quality. And uh, one of my favorite papers of yours is this whole con this idea of failure to rescue that you did with Amir Ghaffari. Um, I'm curious how you think about quality in surgery and the complexity in which that concept exists. You know, on the one hand, you're talking about technical skill, but then there's all these other factors that are perioperative um, that you've also looked at. And I'm curious how you think about quality in surgery and where do you think the next frontiers are in, in, in quality in surgery? That's a big question. So I guess how do I think about quality in surgery? I think about it in a lot of different ways. I'll start with a story. So when I was a medical student, I got exposed to some data that just blew my mind. And it kind of it got, in, it got, it got into my brain that if I spent my life working on this problem, it would be useful. So this is going back 25 years, as I said. Uh, the, there was data coming out of the state of Maryland where Johns Hopkins was that showed that some hospitals have a 2% mortality rate for pancreatic surgery and some hospitals have a 20% mortality rate. Indexed closely um, correlated with volume, but you didn't even need the volume, just the variability across hospitals was, was fascinating to me and it just blew my mind. You know, you're like a naive medical student and you look at that and you're like, well, why, how and why is there a tenfold difference in outcomes across hospitals? That seems like in mortality. Like how can that exist in our rational world? Right? Maybe it seems maybe it was highly naive, um, but I thought, well, geez, that seems like something I want to better understand. Let's figure out why they have t 10 times higher, and then let's do what we can to reduce that. So I think my career has been dedicated to identifying how best to measure quality, and once you can do that, how best to improve it and put some rationality on that. Uh, and the, frame, uh, the framework that I think about quality, I gave it this morning, was there are preoperative things you can do to standardize care, decision-making is part of that. There are intraoperative things, which I think is the one that has been left out the most. We use surrogates like volume. We, uh, we, use, we, we do very little work of actually trying to improve the technique of practicing surgeons. And then, as you mentioned, the postoperatively, 
There is how good is the ICU and the rescue of the patients from complications. And part of that is having health officers, we know, improves your rescue rates. You probably get earlier diagnosis, more prompt institution of treatment. Having ICU physicians and closed ICUs, that seems obvious now, but when I started writing those papers, it wasn't obvious. The surgeons were in the OR, but caring for their ICU patients at the same time, which obviously is not uh, optimal for, for early rescue. So think about all those things. That's the kind of spectrum that I see it on. And there's opportunities for improvement in all of them. You have to measure them and come up with an impl implementation strategy, yeah. I mean, it's one thing to have an interest in something, and then it's another thing to go out, take that interest and turn it into the volume of work that you've done and the quality of the work that you've done on research. Uh, and I'm being a bit selfish in asking this, but what advice do you have for someone who's starting off earlier in their career to take those ideas that you have and actually turn them into something that you can uh, publish on and, and something that actually makes a difference in the world? Like, how did you go about, were you deliberate about thinking about how you were going to shape that path or did it, was it serendipity or, or a bit of both? And, and what advice would you have for, for early career researchers? Yes, so to me, I like to do, I like to work in a lot of areas because it's interesting to me. Um, and I like to always be surrounded by interesting ideas and projects that are being finished and things like that. It's just a fun place to be at the nexus of all that work. So there's a couple of things you need to do to, to get in a position like that. One, and this relates to a quote from the movie Wall Street. Anyone see that? Gordon Gecko. He says, you're not making money unless you're making money while you sleep. You have to get your money working for you, right? And in surgery, it's a little different because compound interest isn't what we're talking about. But I like to tell my mentees, you're not making, you're not doing research unless you're doing research while you're operating, which means that somebody else is doing it, right? And so in my busiest phase of my career, I was in the clinical four days a week. And one day a week, I'd meet with my people and they would execute on things. And the question is, well, well, how do you have people? There's two ways you have people. One is you learn to write grants. You learn to get resources. It's all about resources. You have to, if you can write grants and you can bring in money to hire teams, then you can, you can move forward things. So grant writing was a big priority for me early in my career so that I could get resources to do those things. The second thing is people, mentees, junior faculty, residents, like, in, so part of that is having cool, good ideas and, and then focusing on their interests. So I think one of the key things to doing a lot of work, and this is Harry Truman, the president following Roosevelt said, it's amazing what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. And this is like where people's egos get in the way so much. Um, and so like for me, it's all about we, we, the value that we put around this, we call it fearless generosity. Like I'm just gonna help everybody as much as I can and I'm not gonna worry if I get credit. You actually will, right? You don't have to worry about that. But if you just give up that ego need for credit or senior authorship or whatever it is, you can do a lot more. And so early on, I just surrendered that need. Um, and, and part of it was like I cared, I cared more about the people who I was mentoring, their success, than, than I did about getting credit for anything. Um, and then you just see the, it, it yields a return at a much higher rate than if you're trying to like carve out your place in the, in the hierarchy or in the, in the getting credit for things. Um, so I think th those, are the, those are the keys. Learn how to get resources, monetary, people, and give as much credit away as you can, 
and it will come back to you in being part of a rich research environment. And I think that segues nicely in, into the, one of the things, important things that I wanted to ask you about, and, and that is about mentorship. And, you know, one of my uh, faculty members in uh, where I did my fellowship in Vancouver, Amr Karamudin, and I would often joke that we would like to go and just be a fly in the wall at the University of Michigan and, and see what, what things are like because, you know, you look at the list of mentees that you've had, and, and I mentioned a few of them, like people like Andrew Ibrahim, um, and, you know, for people who don't, folks who don't know, Andrew Ibrahim is uh, one of the, or is credited as being the creator of the visual abstract, right, that, that we see in all these journals. You know, that's just one example, and, th and there's so many mentees that, that Dr. Dimick has had um, that you've had that have just gone on to do amazing work in their own right. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you think about mentorship? And we had a question earlier about what was what's the difference between mentorship and coach, coaching, but why is that clearly such a valuable thing to you? And how do you think about you, your role as a mentor? So my mentorship philosophy is that every single person has a golden nugget of value in them that if we bring, can bring that forth into the world and make them, I was gonna say American surgery, but I will just say surgery, we'll make international surgery better. And it's my job to help harvest that. Like that's my job is to pull that out of you. And, and the more interesting and unique the nugget is, the more fun it is for me. Usually the harder it is to surface it because our traditional structures may not support it or understand it. Um, Andrew Ibrahim is a good example. He, I met him when he was a medical student and he had all this interest in architecture and was um, had a painting on the cover of Academic Medicine, which is our uh, American Association of Medical Colleges journal. Really interesting guy, and, and, I, and I can say this because he said this publicly before. Uh, he called me a year later and he's like, I failed my boards, I didn't match. And I was like, well, that's you're brilliant. I know you're brilliant because I've seen all these other things that you do um, and supported him through that. He ended up coming to do his research with me. Uh, I made him the social media editor for Annals of Surgery because I was on the editorial board. And he ended up coming up with this neat idea for the visual abstract, right? That's a good origin story there. Um, he is trained in architecture, so he ended up being a chief medical officer of the world's third largest architecture firm as a resident. And during his research time, wrote a bunch of great papers. Now he's on faculty at Michigan. He's well-funded. He just got an endowed professorship two years into faculty. So doing very well. And I think the his success is directly proportional to how he had this deep, deeply buried golden nugget of like creativity and design thinking and things that wasn't going to be harvested with our traditional mentorship mechanisms. And those are the most fun to me. It's like people who have these really interesting uh, career trajectories and just need mentorship. So that's, got, that's a good story. But the way I think about it, it gets down to this golden nugget concept. Um, and I put it on me to help find paths and projects uh, and structures to help you harvest that. The more interesting, the better. So how do you know someone has a golden nugget and not some, I don't know what the alternative analogy would be, but you know, some sort of dumpster fire, right? Like some, someone, someone may have, may come to you with a crazy idea. Not all crazy ideas are good ideas, right? So how do you figure out who the person who has a gold, golden nugget? Like how did you realize that this guy who just failed his board exam? And by the way, there's a great 
Wired article about Andrew Ibrahim's uh, origin story uh, that's really worth reading. But how did you? How, how are you able to recognize those things in your main mentees? So I'll let you in on a secret. Everybody has a golden nugget, and everybody has dumpster fires. <laughs> it's all in each of us, right? And they'll all come out at different times. And it's a matter of, um, I think the first thing I do is I, I, if somebody says I have this crazy idea, I'm like, well, I hear your crazy idea. I have a vision for an idea that is like only half crazy and connected to resources and opportunities that I currently have, right? So I bring them a little closer to ground that idea in like a project that I can see ties into your crazy idea, but also I happen to have data and support for that right now. So it, it and it kind of you navigate the space between the crazy and the doable, and and then and then they'll eventually pull you towards the crazier and crazier, which is the fun part of it. And you're such a busy guy. How do you actually cu cultivate and carve out time to be able to spend that quality time with your mentees? And the corollary of that is, what do you ask, expect of your mentees to make that time worthwhile? So everyone's busy. So it's a matter of what you prioritize. And I'll, I'll, I'll make time for it because it's one of the most valuable things that I do. And I, But I expect that there's a return on that time. So I have all my mentees. And at one point, I was writing like eight career development awards with eight different people. And I meet with them for 30 minutes back to back. And I, sit, and I had them record the meetings because I'm not going to repeat myself, right? You record it, you listen to it over and over and over again and bring me back. I want to see everything I said reflected in the next revision of your grant or paper or whatever it is. Not 90%, not 60%, not 20%. What do you think the average is? If I have a 30-minute meeting with you, I give you feedback on a, on a grant. What do you think the average return on my time is? 30%, maybe less, of things that I say. And... Um, so I make them record it, and I bring it back, and it's 100% returned on things. And now, it doesn't mean you have to take all my suggestions. You can go up and say, I didn't like what you did here, so I tried something different. That's different than, I forgot what you said. right? So I make them use that time well. And the people who I see that progress the, mo the most slowly are the people who are most resistant to that type of a model, where they're making them full use of that, that, that time. So that's, that's one trick I use. Uh, the other thing, I mean, I, I prioritize it. I, I keep my Friday afternoons open for mentorship only. And Friday afternoon is a time where, A, I don't like to be doing, having conversations with people about their bad behavior because that gives me a bad taste going into the weekend, which we don't want, right? I want to end in a happy, end my weekend in a happy, happy place. Uh, the other thing I do, many people have heard about my walking habit here. I open up my Saturday and Sunday mornings when I'm not doing something like watching my kids play sport to walking mentoring sessions. And so people can just schedule them with me, and it could be two, three hours. Maybe we can workshop a whole grant. Sometimes people will sub out halfway through and meet me for the first or second hour. But I go for walking meetings on the weekend with my mentees in the woods around my house, which is because I make it a priority. And that tells them that I make it a priority. So I guess walking around the woods is a good place to go and find a, your next big idea for, for research and just go and uh, listen to what Dr. Dimmick is cooking up next. Um, you know, I think it's important to recognize one other thing, and then we'll, I think we'll open it up for, for questions, is really created a culture, at least from the outside, it seems like, of, of leadership and inclusivity. And, you know, one of your other mentors, or mentees, rather, is Chelsea Harris, who uh, has come up with a curriculum for culture, cultural dexterity. Um, and, you know, this is something that's such an important topic for, for people across 
the world and, and particularly in, in North America is trying to understand how we can really open up the house of surgery like we alluded to earlier. So, you know, a couple of questions. What, what motivated that work specifically in, in cultural dexterity? And what are the specific practices that you try to institute at the University of Michigan to try to make it a place that reflects the diversity of the, the people you want to attract? So that project in particular, for those of you who don't know about it, it's called the Cultural Complications Curriculum. And the idea is that you come together to discuss complications of clinical care and morbidity and mortality. And why not once a month discuss some complications to our cultural relationships. And the curriculum has sample cases, but over time, we just use our own cases. The residents will submit, just like they do, an astomotic leak, macroaggression, just comes comes through. We discuss, discuss them openly and as openly as we can. And we're not perfect by any means. Um, and so that, that was the idea for that. And the, the motivation for that was, how can we foster a space in our busy work week where we can have these discussions that have never happened before in mixed company and academic surgery. That was the idea. And it was like, well, we do it, we do M&M. Let's just, and people know how to have an M&M discussion. We know how to be like, I could have done better on that anastomosis. Like if we can use, use that same to say, I could have done better in that interaction, right? Or how, let's discuss ways that we could have done better. Um, and it actually worked pretty well. So that was the genesis behind, beside, behind that. Um, how do, how do you foster inclusivity? I mean, that's a, that's a long uh, answer, but I think the first thing is just being, being intentional about it, right? I think we're so used to people mentoring and sponsoring and creating opportunities for people that look and act just like them. And I'd say in our, in our own history, breaking that cycle of homophily, which is like a, it's a natural human instinct and specifically breaking that cycle and fostering um, an environment where differences are valued instead of likeness is probably one of the most important thing. And then, you know, they say your, your culture is the worst behavior you'll walk past or you'll tolerate in your organization. So not tolerating people who aren't demonstrating inclusive behaviors. So when I interview residents for our program, and we have the most it's probably one of the most diverse residency programs in the in the United States right now. And when I interview people, I ask every single person who reviews for our program, tell me about your understanding of your privilege and how you'll bring that understanding into our environment to help us build an inclusive culture. And the answers I get are amazing. Though I'll summarize it by saying the people with the most privilege provide the worst answers. The people with the least privilege provide the best answers, which is a bit paradoxical. But I can tell you, so people have said things, you know, Michigan doesn't want to train white men. My chair evaluations say things like, like white men can't get ahead at Michigan. It's like, I'm the chair. Did you miss that? Um, <laughs> right? Uh, but w what I will say is people with a lot of privilege, if you want to come into our environment, I want you to demonstrate to me that you have an understanding of your privilege. So sort of along those lines, what, what have you learned from the, this work that you've done to try to foster this culture of inclusivity and maybe even just using the cultural complications as a starting point? What have you kind of learned along this journey as being the chair uh, of trying to create that inclusive culture? Is that how, what was that like 
what were the challenges that you had to overcome to do that? So, you all familiar with game theory? There's a great book called The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. Did you guys all read that? It's great, I highly recommend it. In the book he says that there are two, two kinds of games, and this is classic game theory. There's finite games that have a definitive time period, there's a score, and there's a winner and a loser. And there's infinite games. And the goal of an infinite game is only to continue to play better. And improvement culture is an infinite game. You can never say mission accomplished. You can never really feel like you've moved beyond the, beyond the um, starting point because you're just continuing just trying to do better. And so that's what, that's what we're trying to do, and that's how we treat it. We try and be humble about our position and our progress because every step of the way, you learn more and you fail constantly uh, at, at, at that. So I read that book and I thought, yeah, this is, you never say mission accomplished. You just say we're at the starting point, not the finish line, and we're trying to do better. So maybe I'll open up the floor for questions now, and uh, maybe I can pass this mic around because it, uh, we can record some of the questions. Hi, Dr. Dimmick. Thank you so much for being here. Um, my name is Sarah. I'm one of the R1s in general surgery. Um, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Um, I, I had a question about mentorship. I know you talk about your perspective as a mentor. But for those of us who are in residency, um, I am one of the beneficiaries that you're talking about of that different perspective in residency where I come from an arts background. And I'm very grateful to have the mentorship of people like Dr. Farouk here at Queen's. But for those who maybe don't have those advantages, do you have any suggestions for trainees and people just starting out looking for mentors who could help them find that golden nugget maybe amongst the dumpster fire? <laughs> I see a measure here of like the ratio of golden nugget to dumpster fire is just like a, you want to keep that high, right? High would be right. Um, well, first of all, I think, as I mentioned, I have a lot of optimism about the future of surgery because of the, the differences of people coming into surgery, you know, now and a few years ago, right? People, there's a lot more room for creativity and it's not just like mo this like monolith of the same over the same, like, you know, I was a biology major, like, I'm so boring. Like, when I meet someone who is in, has an artist, arts background, I think that's super interesting. And the question is, how can we bring your, your talents and, and interests into the field to make it brighter and more interesting? Um, so, first of all, I have op general optimism that the mentors that you need will be there, whereas they might not have been, or you might not even be here right now, you know, if, if your differences weren't valued in, the, in this environment. So I have optimism, um, and my general advice to mentees is that mentorship should be organic, right? So go talk to people and see if you they, you click and if, if there's someone who's going to be able to foster your interests. And if not, go find somebody else or go, go try a different one. And you don't want one mentor either. You want like three or four or five. You want somebody for diff different areas of your life. You want different mentors. And I don't be afraid of that. There shouldn't be. And if any mentor is like, no, I'm your only mentor, then find a new mentor because that's it's kind of weird and like possessive. Um, but that's the way it used to be. It was used to be like this ownership thing over your protégés, right? It was mentor-protégé one-on-one. That's not a great model. Um, and probably never was the best model, right? So I guess that, that's my advice. Meet a lot of people. Find your people. F look, foster mentors other, way, other, other places even, you know, especially if you have a kind of a unique research trajectory or interest, don't be afraid to reach out to people, especially now with Zoom, Zoom with them and foster those relationships. I have a lot of 
uh, kind of mentees. In fact, Andrew, who we talked about before, was somebody who was a distance mentee. He was at Case Western Reserve, and he'd like drive up to Ann Arbor to, to meet with me periodically before Zoom was even a thing. So don't be afraid to foster those those uh, connections and relationships outside of your own institution to find the mentorship team that you need. So I want to just take back. You mentioned that you were involved in that early Johns Hopkins uh, study on volume outcomes of pancreatic surgery. And I remember that time very well because um, I remember sitting at a table in Toronto fighting quite hard to maintain being able to do pancreatic surgery here in Kingston because we were a smaller volume center. And I'm curious, you know, over your last 25 years now, how would you change those initial volume outcome studies to better maybe reflect quality? Because I think there were elements that were missing and that initial wave of volume and outcomes really had a, an incredible impact over that next five, 10 years. Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't writing those papers. I was kind of a receipt. I was receiving them and looking at the variability. Um, so if your question is how do you integrate sort of, if you, you're thinking about quality, this gets back to the quality question and kind of the policy implications of quality measures. Um, I have kind of a framework for thinking about this. And I, th I, I mean, I, I firmly believe that for rare things, volume outcome or volume outcome relationships may be one of the most useful from a policy perspective, um, but you have to be careful not to put the line too low, right? Because there, there probably are some higher quality, medium volume providers. Like I would have a hard time believing that you could do five pancreatic resections a year and have the surgical team, the OR team, the ICU team, the you know, to be able to take adequate care of that patient. Because sometimes it's not the surgeon, right? Think about the... Um, small hospital doing Whipple and the patient, you know, maybe the operation was technically perfect, but now they um, have a leak and get a pseudorandrism and need uh, interventional radiology and intubation in an ICU. And guess what? There's no ICU staffing. There is no IR. You know, that patient probably dies right there. So from a rescue perspective, I think it's really important to have enough infrastructure around the patient. And that's, that's the way I think about it these days. And I remember one of John Berkmeyer's papers, who was one of my mentors, uh, who wrote a lot of those papers back in the day, he had one paper is really interesting. It was a second in New England Journal on that looked at the role of intersection of surgeon and hospital. And he found he found something really interesting, where for things where it's a technical operation, if it goes really well, the patient does great, and you don't need a ton of resources. Like carotid endorectomy was a good example. That was like ninety percent due to surgeon volume and ten percent hospital volume. Things like pancreatic resection we're like 80% more about the hospital than the surgeon because it's all about rescue, right? Things go bad and you need a really good system around them to get there. Uh, AAA was like 50-50. You need like a great operation and an ICU in case things go south. Uh, so I guess that's the way I think about it. It's really hard to imagine that no matter how good of a surgeon you are, if you don't have enough clinical substrate or the systems and resources around you in the hospital to, um, to rescue the patient, that it's a good idea that you do the surgery there. So I'm not, so I'm not a strict proponent of, of like high minimum volume standards. I don't know what that you were looking at in Toronto at the time, but I think the surgeon has there's a minimum volume threshold for the surgeon is re totally reasonable. But then structural elements of the system around them to promote rescue, I think, are absolutely important. And same goes for bariatric surgery. You need certain things to do bariatric surgery in case things go wrong. I don't know if that answers your question or not. 
the, the I'll keep talking since no one asked another question. The thing about volume is interesting to me. And we get to like the truth. I, I used to uh, give talks on the problems with small sample size and measuring quality or volume outcome papers. And it's like someone would raise their hand and be like, I've, you know, this is your volume outcome relationship is totally wrong because we've done eight esophagectomies in the last five years and nobody's died. The confidence interval around zero deaths for eight, it goes from zero to 100%. So when you tell me you've had no deaths, and so we actually, I wrote a really tongue-in-cheek paper around this, uh, just have fun with this. I was like, well, I wonder what that actually means. So I took pancreas, esophageal cancer, cabbage, a bunch of other things, and we said, if you have zero deaths for two years, what are your outcomes in the next two years versus someone with more than zero deaths? And it turns out zero mortality is a sign of worse performance. <laughs> so if you say I have no deaths after pancreatic cancer and someone next to you has more than zero, you're, you'll have higher, you'll have worse, worse outcomes because they're usually low volume people. It's like I have zero outcomes out of eight. Chances are you're going to have a bad outcome here in the next couple of years. And someone who did a hundred esophagectomies last year and had one death is better, right? So it's it's actually low volume excellence is almost impossible to ignore, and on average is not true. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you have comments or questions, please email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.